Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is Marcello Rolando, the host of the Reasonable Voices talk news radio show, and my guest today is Dr. Guy McPherson, Ph.D. We have some startling news, uh, perhaps startling to some of us. Some of it will be. It certainly was to me. But Dr. McPherson is an author of at least nine weather-related books and many, many articles regarding climate change. He is a professor emeritus of conservation biology at the University of Arizona and a leading voice of abrupt climate change. And since December 2016, Dr. McPherson has had a a regular column for the weekly hubris in Greece. He is committed to compiling and presenting evidence without financial compensation. Dr. McPherson lives in a homestead in the Maya Mountains of Western Belize, Central America. First of all, Guy, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you, Marcello. I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. I have, a, I have a quick question. Um, I know for a while you were in, living in New Mexico. Um, what prompted the move to Western Belize? Yes, I lived in New Mexico on a homestead I created for a little over seven years after leaving active service at the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I moved to the Maya Mountains of Belize for love. Ah. And I, I mean that in many different ways, not merely the conventional way that most people think of involving another human being, Mm -hmm. but love of being out of the United States, the country of my birth, which I had, in in my work on social criticism, I'd been criticizing the United States government and its policies for a couple of decades. I, I heard many, many, many times in my life, love it or leave it. I tried what I thought was the honorable third way of trying to make it better. Yes. And finally, I just couldn't do that anymore. So I took the advice of many people telling me to leave. I left. Mm. So I love being out of the United States. I love the life I'm leading. I love living instead of making a living. I love the way of living that I can pursue 
in the Central American country of Bolivia, specifically agrarian anarchism. So there's a lot more than meets the eye when I say I moved to a location because of love. It's mm. not merely love for that place. It's love of a whole lot of things associated with it. Can you give us some examples of that? That's intriguing. Sure. With, with agrarian anarchism, the focus of the not just the economy, but the whole set of living arrangements mm. is food. And so somewhere between one and seven days a week, people gather in their village and trade goods based almost exclusively on feeding themselves. So people will bring in food on bicycle and horseback and motorcycle and the occasional small truck into the many villages in the Central American country of Belize. And they'll do that up to seven days a week in in the, the large town meeting about 1,500 people near me. That happens seven days a week. In the smaller towns, it happens as infrequently as one day a week. Mm. And so... So the, the entire society really is based on the growing and distribution of food. And it's, you know, the, the best known model in the United States was created by one of the early presidents of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Yes. And it was Monticello. Yes. And, and so the, the, the food, the growing distribution of food became the centerpiece of the set of living arrangements as modeled and Monticello, no. The big difference, of course, in Belize is that we don't have slaves as Jefferson had in his day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some other minor differences, like the ability to transport goods more easily today than we could then. But the bottom line is Belize is a place where one can live quite simply, where there are no restrictions on such things as harvesting rainwater, illegal at the homestead I created in New Mexico, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And, and the ability to grow food just about anywhere. And it's a, people, people are interested in what, what in the United States we would consider fairly simple living. There's one movie theater in the entire country, for example. Mm. Almost everybody in the country knows everybody else. I like to say that everybody has a cousin in Miami. Everybody <laughs> hides. I grew up in a small town. I know all about everybody knowing everybody's business. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there are advantages too. You know, if, if you're in the United States, let me just give a minor example. When, when I lived in the United States, if I had a flat tire on the interstate highway, mm-hmm. it would ruin my whole day. I'd be irritated for three days. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a, a big pain to have to deal with that. Yes. Contrast that to Belize, where, where I frequently come across somebody with 12 people riding in the back of the pickup truck. The pickup truck is broken down. It's got a broken axle. It's got smoke coming out of the engine. Everybody is just sitting around, standing around, laughing and having a good time. I stop and, and ask them if they need any help. Oh, no, his brother-in-law is coming in an hour, an hour or so. We'll be fine. It doesn't ruin their day. Mm-hmm. These people are living, fully living, mm-hmm. with gratitude for what they have instead of complaining about a flat tire in the interstate. We talk a lot about prioritizing goals and mission and even people and relationships uh, and careers. But we, we never talk about how we prioritize what bothers us. We don't prioritize what we allow to agitate or irritate us. 
And I see people, I know what you're speaking of, because I see people all the time, it seems to me, I mean, we're all different, so different things bother us, but some of the things that uh, I hear over dinner or uh, out with friends, the things they're worried about, are so preoccupied about, or angry about, uh, seem so, I don't know, it, uh, it just seems like a waste of energy to me. Am I being too elitist? I don't know. No, I, I, I absolutely could not agree more. You know, we are eaten up by triviality. Yes. And if we would just, you know, consider, for example, that we get to live here on Earth, which is the most amazing, beautiful place. There's, mm. there's not a better place for a trillion miles in any direction, as, there, as we can tell. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Yes. And we get to be here, and in, instead of, living with gratitude for that, we are eaten up by these trivialities that if we take the long view, I mean, to stop and think about it for 10 minutes, we realize it's nothing. It's really just nothing mm. that is occupying and anchoring and irritating us. So I couldn't agree more with you. Well, I have to say, my, my uncle Gino started me off with this as a kid. He would go, look, is this going to bother you in 100 years? And I, you know, as a young kid... I just looked at him quizzically because I couldn't figure out what he meant by that. And even now, you know, it makes me laugh. And I go, you know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta wonder and and kind of think about, uh, as you say, the big picture. But having said that, what are you and the people in Western Belize doing as you live and embrace life to its fullest? As we get back to, how's that not a bit of an abrupt? Uh, uh, switch to get us back to abrupt climate change, which I promised the folks you would be talking about. How uh, d does your choice of uh, Western Belize have anything to do with with abrupt climate change? No, in, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, during warming events and extinction events affiliated with warming of the planet, mm -hmm. the habitat goes away first near the equator and life persists near the poles so if i were interested in living longer i would have moved north or far south like new zealand southern australia etc and i've had offers to live on at, at other people's expense on every continent in the world except antarctica and i'm mm. not sure i want to live there anyway so this I'm going the wrong way if I'm trying to extend my life, and I knew that at the time. Mm -hmm. So this is about living with the time we have left, that I have left. Mm -hmm. It's not about extending my life in any way. It's it's being with these sweet, sweet, tough people who take no prisoners when it comes to disrupting their families and what they love, mm -hmm. and yet are incredibly grateful and generous and accommodating. So it's just, it, it, you know, it's it's one of two Central or South American countries where English is the official language. I admit that had a lot to do with it mm. because as I tell people all the time, English is my second language <laughs> and I don't have a first. So the better speaking language, I'm going to be in real trouble. Well, you but know... I'm for all these other reasons that have to do with living fully. Uh -huh. not having to do with living longer. Gotcha. And we're going to be making that distinction even more, I know, as we go, because you are a great proponent of, 
understanding the difference between those two things. But since I've sort of casually, unintentionally, casually uh, thrown out the term abrupt climate change at least twice now, I think we'd better uh, have you t explain it, define that to us. We hear global warming, we hear climate change. Most of us don't know there's a difference between climate change and global warming. But what is abrupt climate change? Well, first of all, climate change has to do with the many changes that come with general warming of the planet. So we are in the midst of not just a relatively gradual linear increase in the temperature of the planet, mm -hmm. which is what we were in for the first uh, roughly 265 years mm -hmm. of the Industrial Revolution since 1750. But now we're in the midst of an abrupt warming event indicating that it's irreversible. There's, there's nothing we can do as individuals or society to slow that down. Hmm. It is beyond our control at this point, beyond human control, and it involves many self-reinforcing feedback loops, phenomena that feed upon themselves to make the warming even faster. So it's, it's no longer that we're talking about a tenth of a degree warming from one decade to the next. Mm -hmm. you know, what we're talking about is the potential for, and recent evidence indicates that this is already underway, an increased potential for runaway greenhouse that cannot be stopped, that all we can do is mitigate with individual choices to the extent we're able, and otherwise coming to grips with the fact that habitat for our favorite species is going away way faster than expected. So what, how, is, uh, how is this manifesting? Uh, I mean, we see, we see weather reports, sort of, um, uh, on television every day, but how is abrupt climate change manifesting? Uh, how many different ways? What should we be looking for, and should we bother if there's nothing we can do? warmer 
than it already is within a very, very short period of time. So we're in this damn if you do, damn if you don't situation of you keep the heat engine going that is not only heating the planet, it's also driving to extinction 150 to 200 species a day, according to the United Nations from August 2010, also fouling the air and dirtying the water and so on. So we either keep the heat engine going or we turn it off and that makes it heat up even faster. Oh, goodness. I, I'm... I must admit, you kind of lost me there. I mean, I heard you. You explained it extremely well. But why is stopping what's causing the problem going to make the problem worse? Right. So there's this thing called global dimming. I mentioned that Garrett's work was officially published in February 2011. Yes. Well, the first refereed journal article that came out on global dimming appeared in December of that same year. So... Ten months later, than Garrett's paper indicating civilization with the heat engine, we have this paper by Hansen and colleagues, James Hansen and colleagues, indicating that there are these particulates in the atmosphere, most notably sulfates, associated with burning fossil fuels. And so if we just turn off the burning of fossil fuels, those sulfates fall out of the sky, those mm. particulates fall out of the sky in a very short period of time. They serve as an umbrella. Mm. So not, not only are we producing greenhouse gases by burning fossil fuels, we're also producing these sulfates that serve as an, um, something of an umbrella. So we can either keep the heat engine going, which adds more heating, traps more heat that comes through from sunlight, or we can turn it off and then we heat the whole planet up even faster, almost certainly beyond the ability of humans to adapt, mm -hmm. to even survive, within a period of weeks. Not months, not years, but a few weeks. So, so on one hand, we have to keep civilization going, Yes. but we know, we know the consequences, right? It, it continues to hit the planet. We continue burning fossil fuels. We continue driving to extinction, 150 to 200 species every day. We continue to foul the air and dirty the water and erode the soils into the ocean. So that's, that's the... The good way, the bad way is to turn off civilization. No, we heat it up even faster, and our species goes extinct in a very short period of time. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I hear you. And this is, I promise everyone, not going to be a depressing conversation because there, there is a response that Dr. McPherson very much recommends. And we're going to talk about that more in this next segment. So don't be depressed and don't go away. But I do want to ask, I don't. this probably isn't a short answer, but I'll ask anyway. Are you, you know, you told us earlier in the show that you, why you left America. Are there governments trying to come up with anything? Are they just, I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of denial, yes. And all of a sudden we want to go to Mars and find life there. <laughs> Is that the plan for the super wealthy and governments to, to go, uh, leave us here and go off to Mars? I, I don't know if you're the one to ask. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, we're, we're so afflicted with this idea that humans are so special and amazing mm -hmm. that we need to be saved at every cost. And, you know, I'll admit that we are special and that we are amazing. Mm -hmm. I point that out on a regular basis. Yes. On the other hand, if we're the source of the problem, then maybe we don't actually deserve the opportunity to go to another planet and create the same situation. I don't see anybody asking for a change in human behavior. Mm -hmm. So what I instead see is some sort of escape. Well, 
we tried that. I mean, that was the whole idea of leaving Africa and going to the other continents. There was a whole idea of leaving Europe and coming to North America. Mm. You know, this notion that the planet exists for us to exploit, and then by extension, the notion that the solar system and the universe exist so that we can exploit it. It's a little short-sighted to me. I, I would argue that that's the mentality that got us here. I mean, mm. we should give that up and learn to live with gratitude regardless of how much time we have here on the planet and, and to live more fully instead of trying to stretch it out for another day, another week, another month. Instead, live in the, as Edward Abbey called it, the nirvana of now. Mm. All right. Well, that was a brilliant answer. And and in a relatively short time, we're going to take a break now. We are talking to Dr. Guy McPherson. We are talking about abrupt climate change. And we are talking about how to live in on the eve of it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Some special indie films are small. They take a little slice of life and explore that subject through a unique lens. And that is certainly the case with today's delightful selection. Written, directed, and acted by John Turturro, who snagged Woody Allen in his cast, Fading Gigolo explores the world of two simple New York booksellers confronted with a problem. Their bookshop is closing. What are they going to do? Well, suggests Murray, Woody Allen, why doesn't Fiera Fante Turturro become a gigolo, bring happiness to beautiful, lonely women like Sharon Stone and Sofia Vergara, and share the proceeds with Murray, the procurer? But the real reason Fading Gigolo works so well is its subtly beating heart. Sex is the catalyst, but the surprising success of this odd couple comes from Fiorafante's intuitive ability to provide comfort to deep emotional need, much more powerful than the quick fade of a casual diddle. Yes, Fading Gigolo is a small film, but as we all know, size doesn't matter. Indie veteran Totoro has undertaken a salacious premise and nurtured heartfelt sensitivity. Fading Gigolo. No longer in theaters. Discovery through rental. Good afternoon. This is Marcello Rolando, the host of the Reasonable Voices Talk News Radio Show. And my guest today is Dr. Guy McPherson, Ph.D., we have some startling news, uh, perhaps startling to some of us. Some of it will be. It certainly was to me. But Dr. McPherson is an author of at least nine weather-related books and many, many articles regarding climate change. He is a professor emeritus of conservation biology at the University of Arizona and a leading voice of abrupt climate change. And since December 2016, Dr. McPherson has had a, a regular column for the weekly hubris in Greece. He is committed to compiling and presenting evidence without financial compensation. Dr. McPherson lives in a homestead in the Maya Mountains of Western Belize, Central America. First of all, Guy, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you, Marcello. I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. I have a, I have a quick question. Um, I know for a while you were in, uh, living in New Mexico. Um, 
What prompted the move to Western Belize? Yes, I lived in New Mexico on a homestead I created for a little over seven years after leaving active service at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I moved to the Maya Mountains of Belize for love. Ah. And I mean that in many different ways, not merely the conventional way that most people think of involving another human being, Mm -hmm. but love of being out of the United States, the country of my birth, which I had in in my work on social criticism, I've been criticizing the United States government and its policies for a couple of decades. I I heard many, many, many times in my life, love it or leave it. Mm. I tried what I thought was the honorable third way of trying to make it better. Yes. And finally I just couldn't do that anymore. So I took the advice of many people telling me to leave. I left. Mm. So I love being out of the United States. I love the life I'm leading. I love living instead of making a living. I love the way of living that I can pursue in the Central American country of Belize, specifically agrarian anarchism. So there's a lot more than meets the eye when I moved to a location because of love. It's mm. not merely love for that place. It's love of a whole lot of things associated with it. Can you give us some examples of that? That's intriguing. Sure. With with agrarian anarchism, the focus of the, not just the economy, but the whole set of living arrangements Mm. is food. And so somewhere between one and seven days a week, people gather in their village and trade goods based almost exclusively on feeding themselves. So people will bring in food on bicycle and horseback and motorcycle and the occasional small truck into the many villages in the Central American country of Belize. And they'll do that up to seven days a week in in the, the large town meeting about 1,500 people near me that happens seven days a week. In the smaller towns, it happens as infrequently as one day a week. Hmm. And so so the, the entire society really is based on the growing and distribution of food. And it's, you know, the, the best known model in the United States was created by one of the early presidents of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Yes. And it was Monticello. Yes. And, and so the, the, the food, the growing distribution of food became the centerpiece of the set of living arrangements as modeled at Monticello. Now, the big difference, of course, in Belize is that we don't have slaves as Jefferson had in his day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some other minor differences like the ability to transport goods more easily today than we could then. But the bottom line is Belize is a place where one can live quite simply where there are no restrictions on such things as harvesting rainwater, illegal at the homestead I created in New Mexico, for mm. example. Mm-hmm. And and the ability to grow food just about anywhere. And it's a, people people are interested in what, what in the United States we would consider fairly simple living. There's one movie theater in the entire country, for example. Mm. Almost everybody in the country knows everybody else. I like to say that everybody has a cousin in Miami. 
Everybody <laughs> hides. I grew up in a small town. I know all about everybody, knowing everybody's business. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there are advantages too. You know, if, if you're in the United States, let me just give a minor example. When, when I lived in the United States, if I had a flat tire on the interstate highway, mm-hmm. it would ruin my whole day. I'd be irritated for three days. Mm. It, it's just a, a big pain to have to deal with that. Yes. Contrast that with where where I frequently come across somebody with 12 people riding in the back of the pickup truck. The pickup truck is broken down. It's got a broken axle. It's got smoke coming out of the engine. Everybody is just sitting around, standing around, laughing and having a good time. I stop and, and ask them if they need any help. Oh, no, his brother-in-law is coming in an hour, an hour or so. We'll be fine. It doesn't ruin their day. Mm-hmm. These people are living, fully living, mm-hmm. with gratitude for what they have instead of complaining about a flat tire in the interstate. We talk a lot about prioritizing goals and mission and even people and relationships uh, and careers, but we we never talk about how we prioritize what bothers us. We don't prioritize what we allow to agitate or irritate us. And I see people, I know what you're speaking of, because I see people all the time, it seems to me, I mean, we're all different, so different things bother us, but... Some of the things that uh, I hear over dinner or uh, out with friends, the things they're worried about or so preoccupied about or angry about uh, seem so, I don't know, it uh, it just seems like a waste of energy to me. Am I being too elitist? I don't know. No, I, I, I absolutely could not agree more. You know, we are eaten up by trivialities. Yes. And if we would just... You know, consider, for example, that we get to live here on Earth, which is the most amazing, beautiful place. There's, mm. there's not a better place for a trillion miles in any direction, as we can tell. It's incredible. Yes. And we get to be here, and in, instead of living with gratitude for that, we are eaten up by these trivialities that, if we take the long view, I mean, to stop and think about it for 10 minutes, we realize it's nothing. It's really just nothing mm. that is occupying and anchoring and irritating us. So I couldn't agree more with you. Well, I have to say, my, my my uncle Gino started me off with this as a kid. He would go, "Look, is this going to bother you in a hundred years?" And I, you know, as a young kid, I just looked at him quizzically because I couldn't figure out what he meant by that. And even now, <laughs> you know, it makes me laugh. And I go, you know, you gotta. <laughs> You got to wonder and and kind of think about, uh, as you say, the big picture. But having said that, what are you and the people in Western Belize doing as you live and embrace life to its fullest? As we get back to, how's that not a bit of an abrupt uh, uh, switch to get us back to abrupt climate change, which I promised the folks you would be talking about. How uh, does your choice of uh, Western Belize have anything to do with with abrupt climate change? No, in, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, during warming events and extinction events affiliated with warming of the planet, mm-hmm. the habitat goes away first near the equator and life persists near the poles. So if I were interested in living longer, I would have moved north or far south like New Zealand, southern Australia, etc. I've had offers to live on 
at, at other people's expense on every continent in the world except the Antarctica. I'm mm. not sure I'd want to live there anyway. So this, I'm, I'm going the wrong way if I'm trying to extend my life, and I knew that at the time. Mm-hmm. So this is about living with the time we have left, that I have left. Mm-hmm. It's not about extending my life in any way. It's, it's being with these sweet, sweet tough people who take no prisoners when it comes to disrupting their families and what they love, mm-hmm. and yet are incredibly grateful and generous and accommodating. So it's just, it, it, you know, it's, it's one of two Central or South American countries where English is the official language. I admit that had a lot to do with it, mm. because as I tell people all the time, English is my second language. <laughs> and I don't have a first, so the better speaking with I'm be in real trouble. Well, you but know, I'm here for all these other reasons that have to do with living fully, uh-huh. not having to do with living longer. Gotcha. And we're going to be making that distinction even more, I know, as we go, because you are a great proponent of understanding the difference between those two things. But since I've sort of casually, unintentionally, casually, uh, thrown out the term abrupt climate change at least twice now, I think we better uh, have you explain it, define that to us. We hear global warming, we hear climate change. Most of us don't know there's a difference between climate change and global warming. But what is abrupt climate change? Well, first of all, climate change has to do with the many changes that come with general warming of the planet. So we are in the midst of not just a relatively gradual linear increase in the temperature of the planet, mm-hmm. which is what we were in for the first oh, roughly 265 years mm-hmm. of the Industrial Revolution since 1750. But now we're in the midst of an abrupt warming event indicating that it's irreversible. There's, there's nothing we can do as individuals or society to slow that down. Hmm. It is beyond our control at this point, beyond human control, and it involves many self-reinforcing feedback loops, phenomena that feed upon themselves to make the warming even faster. So it's, it's no longer that we're talking about a tenth of a degree warming from one decade to the next. Mm-hmm. You know, what we're talking about is the potential for, and recent evidence indicates that this is already underway, an increased potential for runaway greenhouse that cannot be stopped, that all we can do is mitigate with individual choices to the extent we're able, and otherwise coming to grips with the fact that habitat for our favorite species is going away way faster than expected. So what, how, is, uh, how is this manifesting? Uh, I mean, we see, we see weather reports, sort of, um, uh, on television every day, but how is abrupt climate change manifesting? Uh, how many different ways? What should we be looking for, and should we bother if there's nothing we can do? Well, uh, I think that this is a reminder that, that being in the midst of abrupt climate change is a reminder to live fully with our lives mm. and to treat with respect and compassion the people around us. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's nothing we can do as a society. You know, there's there's paper written by Tim Garrett 
atmospheric scientist at the University of Utah, written in 2007, declined by 10 different journals, finally published bravely by the editor of the journal Climatic Change. The editor was Stephen Schneider. He published it, uh, I suspect, because he was on his deathbed. Mm. And, and it points out that civilization itself is a heat engine. So was, no matter how we power this thing, this, this industrial revolution, Mm-hmm. No matter how we power it, solar panels, wind turbines, whatever, civilization itself is the heat engine. And now we know, so that paper was written in 2007, originally published in November 2009, pulled from the, from the website, from Climatic Change Online, because the outcry was so great. Finally, officially published in February of 2011. And, but that was before we did before we knew much about this thing called global dimming, mm. now we know that not only is civilization itself a heat engine, but if we turn off the heat engine known as civilization, we're going to warm the planet up to about three degrees Celsius warmer than it already is within a very, very short period of time. So we're in this damned if you do, damned if you don't situation of you keep the heat engine going that is not only heating the planet, it's also driving to expand extinction 150 to 200 species a day according to the United Nations from August 2010 also fouling the air and dirtying the water and so on so we either keep the heat engine going or we turn it off and that makes it heat up even faster oh goodness I I'm I must admit you kind of lost me there I mean I heard you you explained it extremely well but why is stopping what's causing the problem going to make the problem worse Right. So there's this thing called global dimming. I mentioned that Garrett's work was officially published in February 2011. Yes. Well, the first refereed journal article that came out on global dimming appeared in December of that same year. So 10 months later than Garrett's paper indicating civilization was the heat engine, we have this paper by Hansen and colleagues, James Hansen and colleagues, indicating that there are these particulates in the atmosphere, most notably sulfates, associated with burning fossil fuels. And so if we just turn off the burning of fossil fuels, those sulfates fall out of the sky, those mm-hmm. particulates fall out of the sky in a very short period of time. They serve as an umbrella. Oh. So not, not only are we producing greenhouse gases by burning fossil fuels, we're also producing these sulfates that serve as an, um, something of an umbrella. So we can either keep the heat engine going, which adds more heating traps more heat that comes through from sunlight or we can turn it off and then we heat the whole planet up even faster almost certainly beyond the ability of humans to adapt Mm. to even survive within a period of weeks not months not years but a few weeks so so on one hand we have to keep civilization going yes but we know we know the consequences Right, it, it continues to hit the planet. We continue burning fossil fuels. We continue driving to extinction, 150 to 200 species every day. We continue to foul the air and dirty the water and erode the soils into the ocean. So that's that's the the good way. The bad way is to turn off civilization and we heat it up even faster, and our species goes extinct in a very short period of time. Is, if you do it, damn if you don't. I hear you. And this is, I promise everyone, not going to be a depressing conversation because there there is a response that Dr. McPherson very much recommends 
And we're going to talk about that more in this next segment. So don't be depressed and don't go away. But I do want to ask, I don't, this probably isn't a short answer, but I'll ask anyway, are you, you know, you told us earlier in the show that you, why you left America. Are there governments trying to come up with anything? Are they just, I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of denial, yes. And all of a sudden we want to go to Mars and find life there. Is that the plan for the super wealthy and governments to to go, uh, leave us here and go off to Mars? I, I don't know if you're the one to ask. What are your thoughts? Well, you know we're we're so afflicted with this idea that humans are so special and amazing mm-hmm. that we need to be saved at every cost. And you know I'll admit that we are special and that we are amazing. Mm-hmm. I point that out on a regular basis. Yes. On the other hand, if we're the source of the problem, then maybe we don't actually deserve the opportunity to go to another planet and create the same situation. I don't see anybody asking for a change in human behavior. Mm -hmm. So what I instead see is some sort of escape. Well, we tried that. I mean, that was the whole idea of leaving Africa and going to other continents. There's a whole idea of leaving Europe and coming to North America, Mm. you know, this notion that the planet exists for us to exploit, and then by extension, the notion that the solar system and the universe exists so that we can exploit it, seems a little short-sighted to me. I, I would argue that that's the mentality that got us here. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should give that up and learn to live with gratitude, regardless of how much time we have here on the planet, and, and to live more fully instead of trying to stretch it out for another day, another week, another month. Instead, live in the, as Edward Abbey called it, the nirvana of now. Mm. All right. Well, that was a brilliant answer. And and in a relatively short time, we're going to take a break now. We are talking to Dr. Guy McPherson. We are talking about abrupt climate change. And we are talking about how to live in on the eve of it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Film Rental Discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. One of the best films of 2015 was seen in theaters by almost no one. Perhaps that's because its subject matter sounds just too troubling. So let's get that part over with. The central character of the diary of a teenage girl is Minnie, the young daughter of a divorced mother. Minnie is coming of age in San Francisco's permissive 1970s. Oh, and this 15-year-old is having her first sexual relationship with her mother's boyfriend. This may sound like a cesspool to be avoided, but don't. Though Diary does have its horrifying moments, it skillfully skirts the central controversy and ushers us into the mind and life of a nescient woman. But permissive parenting sends her on a journey through a rapacious world poised to devour vulnerable innocence at every opportunity. Minnie's experiences could either destroy her or create an inner strength with a foundation of earned survival. We long for the latter. Women say that Diary is a coming-of-age film that finally gets it right. Some men are too uncomfortable to see it, but perhaps they should. The Diary of a Teenage Girl, not in theaters, 
Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. In Aftermath, Revelation or Denial? An inferiority complex gif featuring a golf ball knockdown of a Secretary of State and an online hoax about the death of Sally Field are a menace to a society already stressed by White House tweets inspiring violence, racism, North Korea, and threats to our immigrant heritage and affordable health care. Playing humane chords of global awareness on instruments of hope captures life's harmony for humanity's definite major purpose. Our exceptional mission is not to harm or ridicule, but to share a life worth living, something the dark foundation of fear, anger, jealousy, and hate can't fathom. Abrupt climate change is upon us, and we deserve better than Goldman Sachs and Gary Cohn's only morons pay the estate tax. We deserve the wisdom discovered in a near-death experience, for anything less is succumbing to the denial of me-first isolationism. So, let's call out Scott Pruitt. Though costumed on the congressional set of Lincoln, Sally as the 16th president's wife in the balcony and I, fighting for Connecticut on the floor below, it wasn't until after the Richmond premiere that Sally saw me without my guilfoil wig and beard. During the revelry before Tired and Wired released Triumph to Farewell Hugs and Kisses, Sally recognized my voice, sans beard and wig. An instant before my wife, camera in hand, requested our photo, Sally silenced my protestations with, Oh, be quiet, can't you see how proud she is of you? Thus our duo was forever digitally cast. Now, with overwhelming photographic proof that climate change has gone too far for us to catch it, the Emergency Management Reform Act directing DHS assistance may be too late for FEMA to deploy volunteer personnel from federal executive agencies as a surge capacity force where needed. However, if empire building, Guantanamo, border wall propaganda, endless wars, and, at an estimated annual cost of $156 billion, maintaining approximately 800 U.S. military bases around the world weren't prioritized over funding school breakfast and after-school programs, funding the EPA and NEA, saving wheat production, which plummeted by 50% in 2016 due to abrupt weather changes, FEMA might not need to redirect North Carolina Matthew relief to Harvey and Irma aftermath. It may be too late to save our great-grandchildren from a planet reeling from serial rapists, but at least we could improve the quality of life for the remaining quantity. There is no profit in being intimidated by K-Street supremacists or defined by Wall Street Towers. How we venerate all life, nurture the new, encourage the young, accompany the elderly, and value the excellence of love thy neighbor as thyself is our remuneration. Years before Steven Spielberg, September 22, 1862, Richmond, I had met Sally Fields, TV co-star, on a New York City loading dock for RMS Queen Elizabeth II. 
but only in my recent panicked search to discover the truth about the hoax concerning sally did i discover we both knew and loved madeline sherwood sally for years and i for an atlantic crossing two pacers waiting to board for southampton i became convinced each time our paths crossed madeline was the mother of tennessee williams no-neck monsters in cat on a hut tin roof she approached you keep smiling at me do i know you no i explained but i know who you are she laughed oh i thought you were someone i'd worked with but didn't recognize it's so embarrassing when that happens two solos now duet crossing the pond early morning deck walks always on her good ear side and her guest at the qe2 sadie hawkins dance on September 11, 2017, in my rebroadcast of The Age of Consequences, Sophie Robinson reminded us, while we can't yet imagine what can be done to save us from abrupt climate change, every potential calamity faced by humankind was faced not knowing how we would conquer it until we did. Opetnews.com posted my revelation about The Age of Consequences, April 23, 2016 the day Sally's and my mutual friend, Madeline Sherwood, died at ninety-three. Now, let's discharge mendacity before the aftermath, and cherish those who pass through our lives not as ships in the night, but beacons of light. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Com website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.